This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving. Matthew chapter 4. And we're going, we're going to go ahead and begin again in verse 12. Now I know that last week, last week we talked about the different temptations, if I remember correctly, we talked about the different temptations that Jesus faced when he was confronted by the devil out in the wilderness following his baptism. And we learned from that, from Jesus' example, the proper way, the proper, the effective way to actually withstand an assault from the devil, how to withstand temptation, how to withstand him messing around in a person's life. And just as a quick recap, very quick, hopefully less than a minute, Jesus did it by, one, being led of the Spirit, and two, by relying completely upon the Word of God. And we leaned real heavy on that last week because it's the Word of God that never changes. The Word of God doesn't get clouded up and doesn't get confused and, and muddled in, in the fog of war, so to speak. The Word of God doesn't change. It is a sword that cuts through confusion if we let it. And it's described as such as, a, as being sharper than any two-edged sword and as being quick. And the reason is it simply it cuts through the confusion. It cuts through the doubt. It cuts through all these things with plain language in black and white or red and white, if you have a red letter Bible, it cuts through it all and it tells you, it shows you. And just as Jesus answered every one of the temptations of the devil, he answered them with the word. He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And again, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And again, it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. And so that really settled that, it settled that confrontation. The devil departed because that's what he does when he loses. That's why we're admonished by the Apostle James to resist the devil and he will flee. That is a promise. If you resist him, then he will flee sooner or later, usually sooner. He will, once he gets the message and understands that you're not going to break, you're not going to be moved, He'll go beat on one of his own kids for a while and he'll leave you alone. He may come back later on with something else, but moving on to verse 12, I think we crossed into this territory a little bit last week. Now, when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast in the borders of Zabulon and Nephthalim, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephthalim by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light. And to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. So this paragraph, verses 12 through 16, we derive a couple of messages from this. And I think we touched on the first of them. We touched on the first of them last week about what, John, what Jesus did when he heard that John was cast into prison. And this is almost a repeat. This is almost a repeat of what we talked about over in Matthew chapter 14 before we 
did our flashback to Matthew, uh, Matthew chapters 3 and 4. It's almost a repeat of that because it was in Matthew chapter 14 that we learned that, that um, Herod had had John the Baptist killed. And so we talked about what Jesus did and what Jesus did not do. It's the same lesson here. What Jesus did and what Jesus did not do here in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. You say, well, how do you derive a, a, a lesson out of that? Well, the lesson is in what Jesus did and did not do. He did not panic and he did not race to Jerusalem to rescue John from prison. And that's important to know because Jesus came to the earth to do the will of God to accomplish the specific mission that he had sent Jesus to accomplish. And it did not involve saving his friend from prison. Now, there, there may be critics over that. Since we bring that up, one might be inclined to have a critical mind on the subject. Say, well, why not? I thought John the Baptist was a, a prophet, the greatest of all prophets and more than a prophet uh, by Jesus' own words. I thought that, that he was Jesus' friend. He was certainly a co-laborer with him, even though they did not work together. Their ministries did not, um, they did not really converge, but they did overlap at Jesus' baptism for that one brief episode why didn't Jesus run to Jerusalem to save John from the evil prison and Herod the evil uh, tetrarch and all of that? Why? Because that wasn't Jesus's mission. And I want to take I want to slow it down a little bit here and take this slowly, because there are a lot of times that things happen in people's lives, both believers and unbelievers alike. Good things, bad things. We understand that from the word of God, that rain falleth on the just and on the unjust alike. And that sun also falleth on the just and on the unjust alike. Good things, bad things, they happen to everyone across the board. And Solomon takes that even further when he says that time and chance happen to them all. Now that's the inspired word of God by the mouth of Solomon, king of Israel, son of David. Yes, he went off the rails later in his life, but he came back onto the rails long enough to at least write the book of Ecclesiastes. And so... Why is this important to know? Well, John was in prison, and it's important to know why he was in prison. He wasn't in prison because he didn't pay parking tickets. He wasn't in prison because he got caught shoplifting Bibles at the local Bible bookstore. Excuse me. But really, he was in prison because he stood up for what was right. And he stood up against what was wrong. And we talked a lot about that. I don't want to repave that for a third or a fourth time tonight. But the core of this in verse 12 is that Jesus had a job and that the demands of his job, the demands of the ministry that he was sent to fulfill required that he be in Galilee, not that he be doing what the natural or perhaps even the carnal mind, I, hate to, I hesitate to use that term because that automatically puts a sinful slant on it, but the natural mind might think, this is a man who can heal the sick and raise the dead. Why couldn't he go, go deliver John? John's mission was almost over. John's mission was almost over. It had been a short ministry, just a few short months, to come in on the scene to 
preach the gospel of the kingdom, which was, and Jesus himself uh, preaches it here in verse 17, which we'll get to in a minute. It was to come onto the scene, preach the gospel of the kingdom, which was repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then once Jesus's ministry began, which was at his baptism, that was the starting pistol, if you will, a three year race, and then it would all end in crucifixion, but it wouldn't really end. But you know what we mean. okay? once Jesus's ministry began, John the Baptist's ministry was rightly ordained to begin diminishing. And by John's own testimony, he said that Jesus must increase but I must decrease. And so Jesus's ministry took off as sort of receiving the torch from John in a manner of speaking. OK, it wasn't the same work, but it was all for ultimately the same purpose, the redemption of his people, Israel, and the redemption of anybody who believes on him. And so John was in prison and he was in prison for a righteous cause. And then 10 chapters later, Jesus gets word that they take his life. And Jesus did the same Thing. He saw to the needs of the ministry, the people that were dying lost and on their way to hell. Jesus was not worried about John the Baptist. He did not have to be. He knew that John the Baptist, though in a prison, was in good hands. He was in God's hands. And he understood that whatever befell John was going to be according to the will of God. Because wasn't it Jesus that explained to uh, Pontius Pilate? said, you've got no authority whatsoever, except it had come to you from my Father in heaven. And so he knew that whatever was going to happen to John was going to happen according to the will of God. And as we've said before, what more glorious end to a ministry for John the Baptist or for any minister? I'm not saying it's one that we're praying for ourselves. I'm just, we're just shining a light on the historical record of it. What more glorious ending than to have one's life taken for the cause of Christ and taken for the cause of righteousness. And that's ultimately what happened to John. There is a martyr's crown that is talked about in the Bible that those who die for the sake of the gospel and for Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ, they receive. That's a crown that not every believer receives. If we die in peace alone in our beds and relatively pain free, you know, that's the way we all kind of want to go out. I imagine if we if we must die, let it be with no pain. And while I'm asleep, let's let me go to bed at night and then open my eyes and behold the glory of my father telling me, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But if a believer has his life taken from him or her for the cause of Christ, there is a crown laid up for them that none but a martyr receives. And we'll sort of leave that. I don't want that to be the, the main point of our message tonight. But it's good to remember that. Jesus saw to the needs of the mission. And so leaving Nazareth and then verses 13 through 16 is the fulfillment of prophecy. And that's another reason why he didn't go to Jerusalem. There was prophecy to fulfill. There was prophecy to fulfill. And he couldn't let a personal, uh, a personal catastrophe prevent that. Leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum which is upon the seacoast in the borders of Zabulun and Nephthalim, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zabulun and the land of Nephthalim, by, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light. And to them which sat in the region of the shadow of death, 
light is sprung up. Well, man, we understand what that prophecy is talking about. Jesus being the light of the world. It wasn't just his disciples that he said, ye are the light of the world. He also said elsewhere, I am the light of the world. And if Jesus is the light of the world, well, what is he lighting up? He is illuminating the lives and the minds and souls and understanding of those who believe upon him. So verse 16, it says, according to that prophecy, the people which sat in darkness saw great light. And to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. This was a prophecy speaking of Jesus coming on the scene, the light of the world coming in to bring light into the lives of men and women. They sat in darkness. Does that mean that they had their electricity cut off? Obviously not. They had lamps. They had natural light sources. They were talking about a spiritual darkness. And so let me ask the question. What does the word enlightenment really mean? That's a big buzzword nowadays, especially to people that have taken a, an excessive and unhealthy interest in certain Eastern philosophies that are all about enlightenment, 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 enlightenment. And, you know, maybe they have an entirely different definition of it. Real enlightenment is when the mind and the heart of a person, be they man or woman, the mind and, the mind and heart of a person is illuminated by the Spirit of God with the light of Jesus Christ. And that usually begins when a person realizes, I'm lost. I am not right with God. That's when the lights are starting to come on. And I want to be right with God. And then they pray and they genuinely repent of their sins. And I'm already getting ahead of myself because this ties into verse 17. They repent of their sins. They pray. They're delivered. They've accepted Christ. Christ has accepted them. And they've been changed from the kingdom of darkness into light. Well, there it is. That was the, that was the core of this prophecy. The people that sat in darkness saw great light. Well, they saw Jesus coming on the scene. And as we'll read in the, in, in the verses that follow, there's a lot that Jesus was going to begin to do that would absolutely blow people away and open their eyes and enlighten their minds in a way that the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sadducees, they were effectively a cult. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, all of the religious teachers of the day, and even the priests themselves. Even the priests themselves, an ordained order under the law of Moses were not able to enlighten their minds the same way that Jesus could. And that's really, well, we've already gone through Matthew chapter 5. So when we finish with chapter 4, we're actually going to go back to where we've been of late. But that really comes out in the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in Matthew chapter 5. But let's read on. Verse 17. Verse 17 is actually a paragraph all in itself. From that time... What time? From the time that Jesus came through and uh, fulfilled this prophecy of Isaiah in verse 16. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now there's a profound message in that right there. Because the very first thing that Jesus instructed other people to do was to repent. That was the first actual instruction from our Lord. Let's actually go back a little bit. Let's go back into chapter 3. 
Now, and then this is just Matthew's gospel that we're talking about. I'm not applying this across the board to uh, Mark, Luke, and John necessarily, because the order of some of the events gets shuffled around a little bit in at least one of the other gospels. But for the sake of going through the gospel of Matthew, the first red letters that appear in that gospel are right there in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, where Jesus arrives on the scene to be baptized by John. This was a baptism that Jesus did not need because it was the baptism of repentance. And Jesus had nothing to repent of. But for the sake of starting things out right, and in Jesus' own words to John, he told John the Baptist, when John said, I need to be baptized by you, Jesus, what are you doing here to be baptized by me? Jesus said, suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Now there was no spoken lesson in there, no overt obvious lesson spoken in those words. And then the next three sets of red letters that we find are in Matthew chapter 4, all of these pertaining to Jesus' temptation by the devil in the wilderness. Following that, this is where he really begins to teach. Chapter 4, verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Now I want to talk about this magic word it's not really magic, okay? But I want to talk about this word for just a few minutes, if you'll let me. Because there are many that take this word and they make a lifestyle out of it. They make it a lifestyle. I'm always repenting. I'm always repenting. I need to repent of this. I need to repent of that. I'm always repenting. Let me tell you what it's intended to be, okay? Repentance is something that is intended to be, uh, I want to phrase this real carefully, okay? If you're living a lifestyle of repentance, you've missed something. Because if you're always having to repent for things, there's something that's missing in your life. Jesus came to transform the heart of men and, of men and women, did he not? He came to change us and, and to take the law of God, which before had only been written on tables of stone or written in the Torah and written on pieces of paper and write them. And I, and I forget the precise address of this verse, okay, but it says in the New Testament, but write them on the fleshy tables of the heart. And that's the difference between night and day, okay? The Word of God written on pages, good. The Word of God written in the heart and in the mind, better. Because then it's here. And when it's here, then it can affect the way that we live. It becomes part of us. And only when it becomes part of us does it act, does it act, are we actually disciples in that respect. Now I understand that, it's a, that the Christian life is a life of ever learning. I understand that. And that God is also patient. Okay, He, ha he has to be or we'd all be doomed. Okay, He's patient with us. And so it's, it's ever learning. But repentance though it may happen many times in the life of a believer, that initial repentance, that initial turning away from the old life, the life of sin, what we used to be, the old man, as Paul the Apostle describes it, the initial turning away from that is supposed to happen once. Supposed to happen one time. We sing it in that song, and I know we don't use 
we don't use hymnals as the basis of our Christianity. It's, but hymnals are, hymns are most often derived from the Word, okay? Unless you're talking about all this contemporary stuff you're listening to on the radio where it just sounds like so much of Jesus is my boyfriend music. And you can't tell what in the world they're singing about. I'm not really an advocate for that sort of stuff. But there's one of the hymns that we sing around here that starts out the very first verse. I was once a sinner, but I came pardoned to receive from my Lord. That's a, a new name written. I think that's the song. A new name. A new name written down in glory and it's mine. And so there is a definite change that's there. And it's important to remember that. There's a definite change of life that occurs when a person initially repents of their sins, their life of sin, in coming to Christ, in asking for forgiveness, accepting Jesus into their heart, being accepted by Jesus, by Jesus' own blood. You've got to be careful how I phrase this stuff because one misstep and someone thinks you believe the wrong thing. But it's supposed to be a one-time change. Now, we also know from the Apostle Paul later in Scripture that yes, if after we have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and accepted His sacrifice for our sins, if after that, we sin again, we do something that's wrong because the flesh is always trying to pull us in that direction. That's why it's so important to keep the flesh crucified and to do, as Paul described it, keep his body under, meaning under subjection. If we, after we have believed, if we sin, we do have an advocate with the Father. We do have an advocate with the Father. And that's Jesus Christ the righteous who sits at the right hand of God even as we speak, interceding on our behalf. So we have an advocate and the blood can still cover us, but it requires repentance yet again, doesn't it? It's not default. We're not a once saved, always saved church. We do not believe in that because the Bible does not support that. There are some I know that have taken scriptures and Pretzel nodded those things and salted them and created a doctrine, but it, that's, it's not biblical. Or else we don't even, though we could take the whole book of Hebrews and just throw it away because it deals with apostasy. Here he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that mean? Repent. Well, turn with me if you would. I don't do a lot of this in our Bible studies. Maybe I should. But if you would, please turn with me back to Isaiah Turn back to the book of Isaiah, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. This is, the, this is the words of the prophet. This is Isaiah, the prophet of the Lord, prophesying by the Spirit of God. It moved upon him and said, say this to the children of Israel, or actually concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Isaiah the king. He says in verse 16, wash you, make you clean, Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. I want to focus on the last line of verse 16 and the first line of verse 17. I wish that they had actually made the verse break after the... Uh, after the word eyes, and it started with cease to do evil, because there's a whole communication there. He says, cease to do evil, learn to do well. Cease to do evil is repenting. 
Repenting is not, and I'll be very clear about this, repenting is not merely, oh God, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Feeling sorry is not repentance. It's feeling sorry. Repentance is when a person, a man or a woman, and this may seem very elementary tonight and very entry level, but there's a time for that. Let's not resent it, even though it's, 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 it's fundamental to, to, to the beginning of a Christian walk. It means stop doing what you know is wrong. That's what repentance means. Stop. It's a negative. It means stop doing the things that you know are wrong. And then in the immediate verse, right after Isaiah says that in chapter 1, is learn to do well. And so they go hand in hand. It's not just, uh, well, I'm going to stop doing this and then I'm going to do nothing, right? Because that creates, that creates a morality vacuum. That creates a spirituality vacuum. And, and just, as in, just as in the natural world, so it is in the spirit. It abhors a vacuum. Something will fill that vacuum. And this ties into maybe as many as half a dozen other different metaphors that all talk about the same thing. Um, if you've ever done gardening, you know, before you could plant anything good, you had to make sure that the ground was good. You had to get all the weeds out and you had to get all of the rocks out and the ground had to be fertile. Maybe, especially if it's Wyoming ground and it's not great ground around here. That's why you need like umpteen acres for just a few cattle you know, because it's not, we don't have the, great, the, the best ground here. But you have to... Get the bad things out of the ground before you uh, can bother planting anything good in there because the bad things will compete with the good. The weeds will always compete with uh, the fruit or whatever it is that you're trying to actually bring about in, in life, so to speak. He says, cease to do evil. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right, so then once the repentance has happened, I've turned my life back. I've turned my back on the life that I used to live. I've turned my back on the life of anger and of wrath and of lust and of deceit and of, uh, uh, how was it described? Well, you talked about the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. All right, well, I've turned my back on all of those things. I have repented. I will never, by the grace of God, this, is, this ought to be the Christian's attitude, I will never, by the grace of God, I will never live that life again. Well, that brings up another question of, well, what if I never lived that life? What if I was raised in the faith? There was a point where you still had to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Well, I was raised in the faith. I, I never did that. You're like that. You're like that guy that came to Jesus and Jesus said, well, you know the commandments. You ought to do those commandments. And then Jesus said, well, one thing that you lack. And he told him, and then the man or the man had said, um, all these things have I done from my youth, you know? Well, the modern take on that would be, I was raised in Sunday school. I know the Ten Commandments by heart. I've, uh, I've always done this. I've always, done, I've always honored my mother and father. I've always uh, paid tithes of all my increase. I've always uh, done good and not done evil. But the heart still needs a conversion experience. Because all of us were born in sin, weren't we? That, that, that's, that's, that's across the whole human race. And, and it's explained in Scripture in more than one place, especially over in Paul's letter to the church in Rome, that all are, all are guilty before God, whether Jew, Gentile, man, woman, rich, poor, all of that, black, white, indifferent. 
all guilty before God. And so even someone raised in the faith, they may not have, they may not have overt sins to repent of because they had not committed them, but there are still sins of thought. And there are still sins of the heart and of the mind that people can, um, can fall prey to. You have a murderous thought when someone makes you angry enough. That, whoa, hey, that, we can't be like that. They can't be in the mind of a child of God. And so even someone raised in the faith has to come to a place where they're, they're no longer doing right because they've been told, but because they want to and because there is a love of God that has been born in their heart that was not previously there. That's why some of the hardest people in the world to get saved are preacher's kids. They're some of the hardest ones to get saved sometimes. Because when they're still in their natural mind and in their carnal mind, it's, it's not clicking, it's not connecting. It's, well, but I don't get it. I mean, I was raised to do right, and so I'm doing right. What are you telling me to repent of? There still has to be there still has to be that fundamental dying to themselves that has to happen in the moment that they seek Christ sincerely for themselves. Does that make sense? There's a pastor's wife I knew long ago. It was actually one of my pastors when I was, uh, when I was young, uh, very young in the faith. It was in the early 1990s. She had been raised up in church. Her dad had been a minister. And so... And she had been brought up. She had been brought up in a in a rather strict group. Okay, you know, it wasn't one that was just all social Christians. But they took the word very, very seriously. And then taking it seriously, they let the word inform their lives, as all believers ought to do. And it was just a real struggle for her to understand until she did. And that really takes a revelation of of the Holy Spirit in a person's life uh, to to open open to someone's like that someone like that's eyes to their true spiritual condition. In an altar call after, after a preaching service, after a worship service, during the altar call, she ended up, there were a bunch of people down at the altar praying and she ended up, she was a, a young teenager at the time, she ended up getting pushed, not really pushed, but because there was no room, uh, up underneath the piano. <laughs> not like this one, there's no room under that, but it was probably like a baby grand or something like that. She ended up underneath the piano with her hands raised and was, truly repenting and seeking God at last for herself. And in that moment, in that moment, fulfilling verse 17, God ceased to be the God of mom and dad. And He became her God. Truly, personally, sincerely, genuinely, whatever word you want to use, whatever adverb you want to use. In that moment, she became a born-again believer. Now, she'd been raised in the faith. Well, why are you saying that she wasn't saved before? Well, she was still being raised by mom and dad. We understand that, that up to, up to a, a certain age, the children of believers are sort of covered by the belief of their fathers and mothers. Uh, I forget precisely the wording, and I even forget because I didn't write it in any notes or anything like that, but it makes it very clear that the children of believers are sanctified else they would be unclean. That's the words of the apostle himself, okay? But there's a point in every believer, in every child's life who's raised as a believer and raised in a believer's household, there's a point where even that child has to personally for himself or for herself 
They've got to meet God. They've got to meet God in prayer and submit themselves to Him at a personal level just like that. And so, man, I wasn't even planning on really um, going into that tonight. And we're actually at a stopping place. We'll, we'll, we'll stop it in just a moment. But we're going to give you a sneak preview of next week's. Next week, we're going to do our dead level best to finish Matthew chapter 4. And then we'll move on from there. He came in preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in verse 18, let's look at this for just a moment. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. That's what they did. These were a couple of fishermen that were on the day job. And then verse 19, he says, And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw other two brethren, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in a ship with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. So sneak preview next week's lesson. When Jesus comes by your life, it's time to follow him. When he comes by and he calls you, and if, you know, I'm using, using that as a bit of a metaphor for the call to salvation. Okay, When Jesus comes by a person's life, there's no, uh, let me think about it, let me fast and pray for a week. There's, there's no, uh, let, me, let me catch you in a month. I'm on a job. We've got to finish this job. We've got to catch a few more fish. Don't you know winter's coming? There's none of that. When Jesus comes and says, follow me, when he comes by a person's life in their heart and says, follow me, it's time to drop the net. And it's time to leave daddy's boat, so to speak. Okay? And it's time to follow Jesus. So that little sneak preview for next week, be it the will of the Lord. We'll be back in Matthew chapter 4 at verse 18. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY giving.